Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes out of necessity. This week's guest is Andrea Alejandra Gonzalez, who is a queer mestiza youth organizer and advocate. I really, really loved Andrea's energy and passion, and I know you will too. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, let's get started. Awesome. So I'm just going to do like my whole spiel that I usually give. So my name is Andrea Alejandra Gonzalez, pronouns she, her, hers. I am a queer mestiza youth organizer and advocate. Um, I've been an organizer since I was 15 years old, and I've been working at the intersection of race and gender justice um, since the age of 15. But recently, um, I have been working more with abolitionist theory, and I call myself an abolitionist. Um, I am for the advocate, I'm advocate for the abolitionist of prisons and police, as well as the transformation of our society as a whole um, and reimagining the systems that we interact with and the way that we interact with each other. And yeah, and I'm also the director of operations at Youth Over Guns. Awesome. I am so excited to be talking with you. And I just want to start off by congratulating you on making this year's Teen Vogue 21 Under 21 list. That's so huge and it's so exciting. Your title in the feature article was All Around Advocate. What do you think about that title? Do you think it fits? I think it I think it does fit. I mean, I've been like I said like I've been organizing for what? 5 years now since I was 15 and I've been involved in a lot of different movements. I've been here before Trump was elected. I was here before March for Our Lives and so I've been a part of and seen the way that young people step up to the plate when no one else will. And so I have been so graciously a part of these movements. You know, I've been a part of feminist movements and I still am. I'm here for gender justice and I'm here for um, supporting and, and cherishing gender expansive young people. Um, and I've been here even before my work with gender justice. I, I live in Staten Island and this is the community where Eric Gardner died. And so I've been talking about um, police brutality and racism within the institution and ideologically for a very, very long time, especially in a place as New York City, which is super progressive. But we have police officers killing black folks on a very regular basis and so again like I'm just so grateful that I have been alive in a time period where we are in a transition between the wisdom of our elders and then this new rising of a, of a active generation in the change of our country and and I've just been a part of it all and I'm really really happy that I have been and so I think all around advocate is pretty it's pretty accurate, but I mean, obviously, like, I think that advocacy looks so many different ways and folks, you know, there's so many different ways that it looks like and that's the beautiful part of advocacy. And definitely in some topics, I'm a little bit um, still, there's like a word for it. I'm still a novice in talking about some topics, but I, I do think that I, I, I like to give my heart and my soul and everything about my energy to every single movement that I can, just because I want to make sure that my, the resources that I do have are being given to folks who are really, truly making change on the ground. But, you know, I was thinking about that article and I was like really hoping they would really tap into this side. Cause like on my Instagram, I call myself a radical lover and I was like, that'd be super cool if they called me that, but like they didn't. And that's totally fine. But yeah, all around advocates still really cool. <laughs> 
I love that title so much, and it definitely seems fitting. I'd really like to talk some about your work as a queer mestiza advocate. What challenges have you faced, and what experiences did you have that brought you to this position in life, where you felt like you needed to advocate for those communities? Absolutely. And so I think it's really important to consider that everybody who's an organizer right now, or has ever been an organizer, comes to this work because it's out of necessity. No one really, someone who is dedicated to uplifting communities are often here because they have experienced violence in their own capacity. And so they're here because they've seen the way that they have personally been impacted by violence of any kind, you know, just not gun violence, because, you know, not having food on the table is violence, not having clean water is violence. Um, all of these stuff, all these things are violent. And so when we have these personal experiences with violence, we are, we are moved to be part of these movements in a larger way, because um, we see the way that our communities have been isolated, we have been ignored, the way that we're completely silenced out of conversations that directly impact us. Um, and so I would, I would say that the, the way that I got involved in this work was, like, you know, at my birth, you know, being a brown woman, a brown queer woman, a brown mestizo woman, all of these identities interlocking required me to be part of these movements. And then additionally, like, you know, my father was an organizer back in his home country. And so listening to stories of his organizing work and listening to his radicalization and his politic definitely pushed me on this path. I remember like my my earliest conversations with my father. I remember I was like four years old and we were talking about the Afghanistan war, which is like a super iffy topic for a toddler. But like I was genuinely curious as we were living in like, you know, this war on terror. And so I was I was seeing it on the news all the time. And I remember those conversations. We were talking about how dangerous capitalism is and how they will really put black and brown bodies on the line just to protect. Um, the state to protect, you know, the elite. And, and I've carried that conversation through the work that I do. And so that's how I got informally involved in organizing. But the first time I organized was in high school. And there was like a photography series that I did with my friend. You can actually see it on my wall, like up there, if you see that. So I did these photographs. And um, I was like shirtless in them. And my school, I like, totally freaked out. And it was like a whole thing on my in my community. I live on Staten Island. So it's a very small community. And so having these photos of a teenager talking about rape culture and talking about the criminalization of uh, the, the bodies of girls um, was a very it was, a, it was a very intense topic on the island. And so with that project and with that movement that I started at my school, I was really involved like headfirst into organizing and, and mobilizing my community members into talking about gender-based violence. And, and yeah, I think that's, I think that answers your question. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that background. I'd love to talk a little bit more about those photos. So you took the photos and then they were censored by your school and got more attention from there. Tell me more about that story. Totally. And so like some background information about myself, like in high school, I was like super duper shy. Like I wouldn't even raise my hand in a class. And I was just like a very quiet um, person. And so like this photography series was like super like abstract to me just because like, I was nervous about being in a photography series. My friend needed support on her photography projects. So I was like, okay, I'm totally going to help you out. And I didn't think much of it. And so I thought it was just like a really cool opportunity to talk about feminism and rape culture um, just because I have already been discussing that for a longer time in like, you know, smaller groups. And with that photography series, so we just thought nothing of it. We submitted it like a normal homework assignment. And this, the photography professor um, at our high school submitted it to be showcased in the yearly spring 
thing with the art show. Um, and so the, all the photography projects, all the art projects would be displayed in the main lobby of the school. And we had like a really, really long main lobby where folks would have to walk through to get to any class. And so we were like on the first billboard of the hallway. And, you know, those are the photos. And I was like shirtless. And I remember my friend came and ran to me in my lunch period. He was like, oh my God, they put the photos up. And we ran outside to see the lobby and they saw my pictures. And I was like so proud that this got up. And so it's going to be a conversation starter, something to start a conversation with dress codes in the school. And within the same period, the photography project was taken down. And my friend came in and said, you know, they took it down. Um, they think it's pornographic. They think it's inappropriate. And so they're not having it anymore. And I remember going back to my lunch table. You know, I got up just now to take a picture with it, sat down. And in that time period, I was told that it was taken down. And I sat down again at my lunch table and like, you know, I was just so furious. I was like, how could they possibly take down this such an important piece of, of work, an important conversation that needed to be had? How could they do this? And I was just angrily eating my lunch. And I was like, I'm going to do something about it. And so I started brainstorming with my friends at the table. And they were like, totally supporting my antics. And I was just like thinking and like, okay, we could do a petition, we could do this and that. And I remember that night, I started a petition online asking for the photos to be put back up. And within the first night, we got like a thousand responses, like, you know, signatures saying like, put the photos back up. And again, um, Staten Island's a very small community. So within that first night, news, news networks on the island started like popping up too. Um, and so I was on a few written news stations the next day, just talking about like why we need to put it back up, why it was important to the community. They even interviewed like some kids from my school and they were all supportive of it too. So it was really cool to see like my work not only you know, being limited to that news network, but actually also impacting the other students I went to school with. And, but the, the sad part is that they never really let us put up the original photos again. However, they let us do a photography series with shirts on our backs, which is super gross. They put shirts on our back and we had to like write paint stuff on the back of the shirts. And so we took a few jabs at the school like on those shirts, but we were still pretty mad. And, and in the process of like, you know, trying to get them back up, we were being blackmailed by professors. We were getting blackmailed by the school. Like it was a very violent situation between me and my friend and then the institution who was trying to um, censor and silence this art project. Um, but then like a year later the conversation started again where we submitted these photos um, into a few competitions and so we got them up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and also Capitol Hill in DC and so that was like a really cool like celebration moment and I wish that they did go back in up in the lobby but I think that you know we we win and we lose and it's not that we lose but we learn a lesson and like you know I think maybe we should have taken more radical steps into like you know putting pressure on the administration saying like you know okay you don't want the, the the project up but we need to have a conversation about these dress codes and the way that you treat young women in this school but it's it's a really I, I miss that I miss being a young person in and and, and thinking so on my feet. And I mean, I'm still like that, but it was definitely different since it was my first time doing it on my own. But yeah, that was like a really cool moment, I guess. <laughs> I love that story. It's super cool. Your activism stretches across so many different issues as we've talked about. And I've talked to a bunch of activists who find it difficult to wrap their heads around and advocate for just one tough issue, let alone a handful like you're doing. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the different issues that you're working with? Yeah, I, I, def I definitely do get overwhelmed. Like I, at least like a, once a week, I like just like completely crumble. Like it's just all of these things. I've been working in this for five years and like I'm well aware, like, you know, my ancestors and my elders have been fighting the system for way longer. But, you know, I don't know, like I, I remember being like, you know, a disillusioned 
preteen and was saying, you know, we're in the 21st century, things are going to get better a lot faster. And then being directly in the policymaking, directly being in the organizing work, and you see firsthand how slowly things move and how often your hard work kind of like makes zero impact on an on a institutional system of violence, it's, it's disheartening. Like, you know, you, you look at the way that you, you put your whole heart into it and, and the systems are still broken. I mean, not, not broken, like they're working as intention, but they're still acting in the same type of violent way. And if not, they are evolving their violence in order to become more covert. And so it's, it's very stressful you know, being knowledgeable about so many different things and being conscious of the ways that so many systems impact us and, and not being able to see the solution so clearly. But I think that, you know, the thing that helps me out in these moments of crisis and these moments of overwhelmness, I really do look to my mentors and my friends. And like, you know, I have so many, there's this one book that I always read when I'm like stressed out. It's called Emergent Strategy and by Adrienne Marie Brown, my favorite book ever. And um, she talks so much about Afrofuturism and just also like, just like the hope that we have. And like, you know, this ability to be in this moment and do something about it is so, so, so important because, you know, no matter what we do, no matter what we want to do, or no matter what we do with our time right now, the future is coming. That is 100% certain. The, the, the present is only a fleeting second, and the future is already here. And so it's really important to do something in this exact moment, because the future is, is going to be impacted by the, whatever thought that you have, whatever action that you take. And so nothing is too small for the future. Anything can change in a couple of seconds. And so I, I think about that. And I also think about the way that we won't necessarily succeed in all of our moment in all of our movements within this lifetime. We're not in this decade, not in this year. But what we can do is make sure that we leave a blueprint for the next generation so they can pick where we left off. You know, whenever we get too tired, when we get burnt out, when our bodies are telling us to rest, we are giving it into good hands of young people that we that we shared our wisdom with, with our knowledge. We we gave them our tools and our love so they can be cherished, hold that love in them. And they're going to take it and run with it farther than we could ever imagine. And with that energy that young people have, they can invent new vocabulary words to describe what we're experiencing. And they can invent new systems of justice and new ways to love each other. And, and that's what makes me energized again. When things are super bad, when, when, you know, when someone else dies, when these systems continue to take so much from us, it's really important that we keep on giving to ourselves and the next generation. So, you know, you know, at least we can still dream. That's the only thing that we can, they can't take away. And so dreaming is something that I'm really passionate about. And so I think that's what gives me hope when things kind of, I don't know, look really rough. (laughs) Definitely. I love your energy. It's so inspiring and so motivating. So this next question is something that I've been thinking about and I'd love to get your take on it. Do you ever feel like some activists and movements are working against each other because they're single-minded and fighting for their own issue more than others? Or maybe they're neglecting to include other groups in their fight for justice and equality? Yeah, and so, I mean, I think there's like a couple of questions in that in that question. So I think there is some strife between organizations, especially since everyone's at a different level of consciousness, a different level of radicalization. So we have all different solutions to the issues that we encounter. You know, there's still folks in our spaces that advocate for police reform rather than police defunding or police abolition. And so those are some just a few things that, you know, we contradict on. So we're saying, okay, all these people are dying at the hands of the police. What is the solution? We get a 
million different responses. And so that does create some conflict. But, you know, I think that's normal. I think that that not only encourages growth, um, but it also encourages radicalization. And so I think that it makes everyone get onto the same page faster when we discuss these these differences in our thoughts and our in our thinking processes. But there's, a, there's another question in that that you asked. And I think it was so Oh, about the single minded one about the single track activism. And to that, I'd say that it's okay to focus on one solely. I think that being extremely knowledgeable on one thing is so important because you're able to return the information to folks who don't have the time necessarily to get invested into that one field. Um, and so I think being able to be on one track, I think it's okay. But what makes a difference is that understanding the way that that one track impacts so many different people is really important. So, you know, when we're doing, I don't know, education justice, right? We can't just only talk about the educate the institution of education, but also think about, like, you know, the races and the identities that come into these institutions and how they lead. And we also need to talk about maybe the criminalization of young people in the institutions, you know, through metal detectors and police officers and just literally the architecture of these schools, right? And so it all is education related, but there's so many different conversations to be had within the education conversation. And so, like, you know, another thing about education is, like, we we can't only talk about the curriculum, but we also need to talk about the policies of punishment. You know, how do we get rid of punitive policies? How do we make sure that we encourage um, communities that are based in transformative justice and restorative justice um, and making sure that we're not criminalizing black and brown bodies who come into the school. And so I think being on a one track is okay as long as we do see the way that it intersects with so many other things. And I think that, you know, I encourage folks to be on that one track to, you know, make sure that we are absorbing every bit of information and analyzing and nitpicking everything about a single institution so that we can then share that knowledge with a larger group of people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A new movement of activism for young people has obviously been social media, and I'd love to get your take on how it affects today's movements. How has social media affected your activism, and what advice do you have for people who may be using it as a tool? Awesome. I'm, I'm so happy you asked that. So I think social media definitely has its pros and its cons. Like, you know, in, in terms of pros, it's such an amazing platform to connect with other young people. Like every single young person is on it. And that's like a whole different conversation about like, you know, the monopoly of social media and how they're like just brainwashing us to always be on a screen. But, you know, the positive of that is that we have access to a platform constantly. Like, you know, you in, in the past, it used to be like at rallies or at panels that you only got to encounter this in, incredible language and this incredible knowledge knowledge but now on social media it's accessible we can it's tangible we can touch it we can edit it we can interact with it we can analyze it all in the moment and I think that's so beautiful that's how we that's how we develop our knowledge that's how we you know bring people into our movements when we make it accessible because a lot of times when I meet young people the thing that's like pushing them away from joining an organization or doing a thing is that they don't think they know enough to be part of something. And so when you have social media and you have all that knowledge accessible, you get to, you know, guide people towards that and they get to be, they feel encouraged to learn more. But then at the end, the, flip side of that, you know, social media is incredibly performative. We know that, you know, the way that people like only post certain pictures, they look really good, or they post only like vacation pictures to look like they're always on vacation, or like people posting graphics and then doing none of the work afterwards. And so, you know, you can put a bunch of like pretty infographics about, um, I don't know, the, the prison industrial complex, but if you're not actively organizing these people, or at least giving them the tools to continue that knowledge building, or, I don't know, figuring out a way to support the organizers that are doing the work, it, it kind of just 
ends. Like there's just like a, a point where people just don't want to look anymore because there's no, there's no like ways to go. And so I think that's like really important that we're not being performative about it. We can't just pretend and, and like put on a show that we care about black lives and we care about these things. It's not like a, it's becoming a trend. That's what it is. You know, like the way that Fashion Nova talked about Breonna Taylor's death and, and George Floyd's death, but did nothing to donate to, the, to those families or did nothing to support the people who were being jailed at these protests. And so it's all very for show. And it's very, very dangerous to do that. And the thing with Blackout Tuesday, that was so dangerous. The, everything, I mean, I think the idea in the beginning was like pretty okay. I think the organizers said that, you know, it was a day where like, you know, allies would just kind of sit back and learn and not take up the space with like, you know, absent-minded things and that's a pretty good idea you know a lot of times our feeds are filled with a lot of nonsense and so if it was like a, just a day filled with infographics and knowledge and and resources that'd be a pretty cool thing but what people did instead was put a black square and hashtag it black lives matter therefore polluting the black lives matter hashtag completely destroying the timeline and the algorithm with black squares and completely silencing all the things that were happening that day that day there, there was probably hundreds of protests happening internationally. That day, probably hundreds of people were arrested. Those were the things that needed to be highlighted. And instead, we just had a feed full of black squares. And that's incredibly performative. That was like, you know, saying like, oh, I support black lives, so I'm gonna post a black square. And what did that do? Did that protect a black life? You know, did that, did that share a resource? Did that free someone from a jail? Like, it did none of that. And so I think social media, can be used for good. Social media is the reason why we have like, you know, really cool protests. When we share a flyer online, we have so many folks coming and panels and information and that's beautiful. And, but it, it, there's a line to be drawn when it comes to this stuff. And sometimes information, false information can be spread as well. Like I know there's like a lot of accounts right now that are kind of, I don't know, taking over these spaces to be like, you know, the, the highest authority on social justice. And it's just not helpful whatsoever. And they're not even taking, they're not, it's not even a good take on the issue. Like it's a super superficial one. And so it's, it's just, it's difficult to see like, you know, the pros and the cons and they kind of even out at the end. But it's also just really important to consider that social media is only one tool in our really big organizing toolbox. There are so many things that we can do. And so utilizing social media isn't a bad thing, but just make sure that we're recognizing there's other tools and other means to be used in order to get, you know, uh, to our collective liberation. Definitely. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for explaining that. I have kind of a lighter question now. What do you do for fun or to de-stress when you need a little break from your activism? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, I love seeing my friends, you know, pre, pre pandemic, I would see them in person, but you know, I would like, per, like call up a friend when I feel really anxious or I need to just vent, like, you know, just hearing someone else's voice other than like my own feels really good sometimes. And I also love to buy flowers. I love flowers. I love gardening. Like in the summertime, I had my own little garden. I had like an amazing harvest of jalapenos this year. <laughs> so I love gardening and that's what was like my go-to de-stressing in the summertime. And again, like books, I love, books and I've been like so like for the past few years I've been like so focused on getting information about social justice from nonfiction books and so that kind of like drained me a little bit I was like I need to get information I need to get information it was like kind of like an obsession I had and but now for a class I recently take for school it was a black women's writers class and we had to read Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and it changed my life literally quite literally changed my life and I completely recommend it to anybody but like 
I think that gave me the most information about social justice and envisioning a brighter future, a liberated future, more than any other book I've read. And so I, I love reading science fiction books. Like I'm a total nerd. Um, I love, love, love science. And what's another thing? I like to dance as well. I love dancing. I'm not a professional dancer in any kind of way, but I do enjoy like just dancing in my room or like dancing in the sunshine in the summertime. That was like my go-to thing too. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I love the dancing tip. That's great. So I have kind of a signature question that I like to ask all of my guests. Lots of young people, particularly college students, want to create change and they want to make a difference around the world, but they may not know where to get started. What advice do you most want to share with these young people? Yeah, so I think that I have like, there's so much things to be said about folks who aren't involved yet, but, you know, I think first centering like, you know, love as the most important thing like we're not doing this for ego we're not doing this for popularity we're not doing it for followers we're doing it for love for ourselves for the community and i think that should be like the rooting thing that everyone does this work for love to and love for a brighter future love for everything in this world and i think that's something that people should really center and then also for anyone who hasn't gotten involved Activism does not look like one way. You do not always have to be on the front lines kicking gas cans back at the police. That is not the only role that exists. There are healers, there are teachers, there are video editors, there are um, lawyers. There are so many people necessary in this movement. So you don't have to major in poli-sci to be an activist. We need, we need anti-racist doctors. We need anti-racist teachers. There's so many different ways. The ways are infinite. Our communities are filled with so many different jobs and we can totally bring this knowledge of social justice um, into these jobs and so just do what feels right and you know do what you love and incorporate building a better world into that and you know it's a little hard but you know with patience and talking to people who are on the same page as you you definitely find your way a lot easier and so just have trust in yourself and trust in the process of, of figuring out how you can best contribute to this movement and then everything will be fine <laughs> I absolutely love talking with Andrea because of her wonderful energy and optimism about the future. She really is a radical lover that came into activism out of compassion for others. Andrea felt the need to speak up for herself and her friends when their pictures were censored because she recognized that change comes out of necessity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can follow Andrea on Instagram at Mestiza Womanist. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys!